Um, okay, so an apparent horizon and other stories. I'm really excited. It's been a minute since I've done a reading, um, and, and this one's going to be pretty directed to some things that I've been thinking about. And so an apparent horizon and other stories is a collection of two novellas, um, a handful of linked stories and fragments, and then something that I would describe as just kind of like an extended fragment. Um, and today, I think I'm going to read, for, I'll leave the novellas alone, I think I'm going to read one of the standalone short stories. And from the extended fragment, I may throw in another, a couple fragments, just so you get a sense of what's trying to be accomplished here and how things may or may not connect um, to hopefully open up for um, some good questions. So um, we'll start with the, with sh the standalone short story. And by connected this string of stories and fragments is you know since we're talking so much about craft in our meetings th this is the one that's most grounded in my actual lived experience it follows a professor who's kind of coming up against um, institutional power in various forms and this one particular story which is a full story so I won't really introduce it is elegy for the sweet tempered so I'll read it in its entirety I hadn't yet met Sasha I was in Rabat with another girl, and we were lost in the markets. A man helped, and we followed him to a house full of art and dried fish. It surfaced just this morning, sitting in the rental in front of the bakery, waiting for the college kid to pull the sandwich board to the curb and open the doors. That the man wrapped the fish in a frayed white cloth before he pointed us toward our rented flat. And that on the, wa on the walk, like tourists, we bought too many dates and that I was on the terrace waiting for a playoff score to update on my phone while the girl was in the kitchen organizing the plate for us to share. He had a gun and he knew where she lived. The woman who had sublet my apartment had written. He took her to the alley. This was nearly all she wrote and that she was sorry to have told me this and a friend had gathered her and that my apartment would be empty until I returned. I'm back at the hotel with all of this and Sasha is still asleep. Her shirt stained at the breast and not even an ounce of pumped milk in a bottle on the bedside table. I date the milk and take it to the fridge with the rest. It's the stick of the door that wakes her. She's on an elbow, massaging her scalp and ready to nurse, but Darius isn't here. I smile and hand her one of the cookies. Go fuck yourself and your cookies, spilling out a laugh. We are just beginning to laugh. I want coffee, she says, from the closet as she holds her green and white polka dot dress against her hips. Let's just get the cookies over with. It was her idea to go back to the NICU. I convinced her to let Darius sleep at my mom's. We traveled all this way and it'd be cruel not to carve out some time, no matter how heavy a presence Sasha's mantra, my mom is. When Darius was born, Sasha announced that the family wouldn't be able to visit until we left the hospital. He was jaundiced and we were told it would be a day or two. We stayed nine and my mom came anyway and Sasha knew we couldn't complain. The baby in the neighboring bed was taken for brain surgery on our second day and hadn't returned by the time we left. When we were on the plane back to, uh, to LA yesterday, she thought the cookies would be nice. I doubted they'd remember us. As we cross the street, Shasta takes the bakery box from me. Eight months ago, after nine days, leaving the hospital wasn't the exit I'd imagined. I crossed the parking lot in the dark, stood in the elevator that had reeked of piss since we arrived, and in 30 minutes, the three of us were home. Today there is sun, and we walk through the front door, and the gift shop is open. When the buzzer, buzzer sounds and the NICU doors click open, three mothers are being led to the room where infant torsos, the dull color of airplane window shades, wait for them. 
Take a seat and get familiar, Sasha whispers, attempting a version of the CPR trainer we know will enter shortly. Each time we'd seen this parade, we rattled on about how absurd it all was, it, and it was and is. Six or seven others who haven't slept more than two hours at a stretch in at least a week will be in this room. While our crew was refreshingly democratized by this circumstance and this exhaustion, Lululemon meeting three-inch sparkling acrylic nails, meeting whatever we were to them, if they wanted any of us to learn how to save a choking baby, that wasn't the time for the demonstration. A nurse comes at us with open arms before we can even announce ourselves, and I'm surprised to recognize her. With my clumsy hug and the smell of ivory on her bicep comes the memory of how brown Darius was under the billy lights. She's the only nurse on the floor that was with us, but she feels the need to introduce the others on this shift. Somehow, months and countless babies later, she has kind things to say about us. Sasha shows pictures of Darius from Christmas. Another nurse, wearing all manner of, un of unicorn from head to toe, asks for one. If it's okay, our nurse interrupts. We can put it on the screen in the waiting room. It gives parents hope. I excuse myself, knowing Sasha will start taking pictures with the staff. On the toilet, without the need to shit, I find an email from three months after the woman who sublet my apartment was raped. I followed up, and she had moved back to New York. In the exchange, unprompted, I'd apparently apologized for the neighborhood. I remember wanting to say more, how I felt guilty, but having some sense not to. Her return email was sweet and silent. I'm searching the internet for variations of her name when a man comes into the stall next to mine. I flush, wash my hands, and hustle out just as he begins to grunt what I'm convinced are the drums from that Queen song. Sasha is waiting by the elevators. You, she says. I ask if she's hungry. What do you think? We park down the block from our first apartment and head to the diner with the manhole blueberry pancakes across from the park, only to find it's been turned into a tattoo parlor, the sloth and the bee. Five years since we moved even further east in the city before leaving altogether for my job, and with the distance, these names are that much more obnoxious. Living the past months in a small southern college town with no billboards and pretty much just an IHOP and a Waffle House for breakfast doesn't help. You, your people, I say. Next, they'll open Billy's Groat and only serve oat milk lattes. She impersonates a laugh, affirming some sort of solidarity and rhythm. But if I'm honest, the neighborhood was this way when we were here, and that's part of why we came. She lets me pull her close by the crepe belt of her dress, and I suggest we walk to the deli we passed on the drive over. It's still in the 30s back home, and who knows when the weather will turn. Should only be 10 minutes, I say. My guess is that it's nostalgia that draws Sasha to the quart of potato salad. To be fair, at this hour in the morning, there's only refrigerated food, but the only other time we'd been in this place was when we lied through our teeth to her parents and faked our first Thanksgiving meal together. Despite them being German immigrants living in Connecticut and not usually doing the Thanksgiving turkey thing, I've always felt they'd sniffed us out. But I wasn't the rock climber or the EDM DJ, and so they played it cool. Her dad, only slightly inebriated, pretty much fessed to that in his wedding toast, to the one who rock climbed at least. Something about his gratitude for Mount Olympus, Mount Olympus being in her rearview mirror put Sasha's eyes in her lobster bisque. There's decent drip up front. The small seating area has chairs over the tables and the woman at checkout says we're welcome to take one. We ask for a plastic spoon and sit on the bus bench outside, trading potatoes and coffee. Sasha asks uh, how I think my mom is managing. I can just picture her, she says as she puts a spoonful in my mouth before I can find the right answer. I'm sure Darius is all about it. 
thank you for this, I say. Yeah, more to the air than to me. My head is on the armrest and my ankles on her thighs, the wrought iron massaging the knot on the back of my head that's been there since I threw it against the rim of the tub after one of our first fights. Sasha moves the cuffs of my jeans and gently twists the hair on my shins. You could seriously donate this shit to chemo patients, she says. I think of making a joke, something with fuck off, but close my eyes and wait for the spots. I wake to the beeps of the unfolding handicap ramp and to the apparition of a cinnamon-skinned woman in a purple and gold sequence bomber jacket and a padded chair. She's glittering with a crumpled paper bag and an oxygen tank on her lap. The potato salad is nowhere to be seen. The driver is shouting for this woman to stop. The hose of her tank is tangled in the door's hinge and I stumble up to help push the door back from the outside. My eyes at the level of the veins and flesh escaping her compression socks. When she's free, before she motors away, she squeezes my hand with a delicateness that takes me to the grandmother of an old friend. I peek my head into the bus. Besides a couple taking up the whole last row and a man with enormous studio headphones, it's empty. Come on, turning to Sasha on the bench. Though she had lived here nine years, this would definitely be her first bus ride in LA. The first we've been together, at least. I'm serious, as I dig behind the insurance cards to where I keep the cash for tolls when we head north on I-95 to visit her family. The driver flicks her wrist, and I stand back so she can draw on the ramp. She's skinny and dark-haired, more an aged and disgruntled Hollywood film waitress than a bus driver, Sandra Bullock trying a deep character dive. Sasha would call her road hard. I hand her $5, but she demands exact change with the smoker's voice I'd expected. I ask if she can put what's left toward the next passenger, and she looks into her fisheye mirror. Go on now, refusing the money with a wink, but pointing to Sasha's coffee, She'll have to throw that out. I rode this same line three times a week in grad school. Like just about everything in the city, on the surface, this bus is cleaner than most from back then, but the mosaic seats with their sporadic cigarette burns and petrified gum are the same. We pass the man with the headphones and, the stand, at the back, and stand at the back door. I slumped to watch the street signs with my arm tight around Sasha's shoulder. I miss this dress, I tell her. I want to add that I like that it rides higher with the weight, how it looks on her legs, but she wouldn't believe me. My mind sticks on the 14-hour layover in Charles de Gaulle as I made my, back, my way back to Los Angeles, to the empty apartment save for the water-worn water bamboo dish rack with the one unfamiliar mug. I pull the cord too late. The next stop is three blocks past our car, but Sasha seems fine with it. We jump into the grass as the bus slows and the heel strap on her sandal breaks. She grabs me by the elbow while she pulls off both, and we walk like this, her hand in the bend of my arm, altering balding grass and concrete until we are driving back to the hotel. All right, so that's that. <coughs> um, let me do a time check here. I'll read a, so I'm going to read a, a, a very small vignette, but it's um, following the same character here, um, but it's one that's been sitting with me since all this craziness has been going on in the Middle East, and so I just, it's been kind of regurgitating a similar kind of trauma. This one um, is called Threshold. It's spelled out um, with the kind of phonetic respelling that you'll see in the dictionary. There's another fragment earlier in the book with Threshold spelled out as it is. Um, there's an unveiled reference to epilepsy here. That's the, the language of Threshold, um, but yeah, I just, feel like reading this and we can certainly talk about it um, as it I think it's a little bit better taken in on the page but threshold 
The day after the planes found the buildings, the aliens on the southwest corner of La Cienega and Pico were selling flags with their hot dogs. He wondered where they had come from. It was then he discovered the unmistakable taste of copper in his nostrils, that whispering wordless laughter that divides him from himself. Many years later, in an August South, when he was unable to identify the wretched of the earth for his wife, who so desperately wanted them gathered, she carried him to the ER. It was suddenly a laughter in need of the ritual of naming. So that's that. All right, next, um, I'm gonna read from The Deaf Men. This is one I kind of describe as an extended fragment. Um, anyone here familiar with the work of Robert Wilson? He's an avant-garde experimental theater director, huge now, huge in the 80s, but really kind of gets him his start in the 70s um, in New York in the, in the theater scene there. Um, his first play is a play called Deaf Men Glance, um, which kind of centers on a deaf mute black child which, in which he had adopted at some point. And so I really got interested in the archive around Wilson and, and this particular story, um, and so created something around it. The other reference, I hope, yeah, I think we'll get to both of them, um, is so we, we start with one particular scene that's gonna actually be set in Mexico um, around the Corpus Christi massacre. Anyone familiar with this? So we're talking 1971, three years after the 68, the violence of 1968 in the Olympics in Mexico, or right before the Olympics in Mexico, um, also known um, um, as the Alcanazo, it's a paramilitary suppression of student groups that's taking place there. Um, so this, those two things kind of are really what under, underlie this particular book. So uh, the deaf men are fragments of the apocryphal book of Rafael of Nagadoches and his journey to the Mexican Sierra. June 1971, so I'll read a vignette from the, that starts it off and then we'll go kind of back in time to a bit of, of an origin of this, this meeting. June 1971, the Massatec boy and the black youth sit for some 25 minutes before the gathering crowd of university students begins to understand. The boy is dressed in linen brown with mud and the other somewhat older and thick necked in a Victorian collar to his Adam's apple a large brim black felt hat and suspenders. Even with the morning chill, the boy shows a dimple when he talks. One student must venture from below the steps of the entrance to the gymnasium where the two were found, bundled together against the damp to find another from the Sierra. Of course, all wonder how the travelers got here and about the odd pairing, but most are more concerned with the vitality of the two than the mystery. Strange people show up all the time but these are menacing times, as news is still echoing the city of the massacre of students in the Capitol just six days before. Those in this crowd demonstrated in support of the reforms in the very same quad they now stand, but while there were police, there were no death squads. And though they have poured over El Universal each morning since last Thursday, looking for men with sticks and youths with mangled faces, they know the death toll from the Capitol will be worse than the press will ever be allowed to calculate. It was supposed to have been the day to celebrate the body and blood of Christ. And while last Saturday, some of them were at mass with demands that God speak of this violence, here there are two bodies that were brought through something that they contend to. One of the students brings Tejate from the vendor at the gates to help the boy tell his story in words that are sometimes difficult for the translator to understand, having the language of one brought to the city in the womb. The deaf man, the triangulated moniker for the boy's companion, drove them 
in a van the color of smoldering harvest until they ran out of petrol. They pushed the van far off the road and buried it in brush. He points to the deaf man's collared neck where the key hangs on a twine made from corn husks. He, the boy, exchanged their cargo, pine oak boards, goat milk, and sapote for space in the back of mule-driven carts. They walked the last 15 kilometers in the dark, following the glow of the lights from the university's quad that under federal order had been on through the nights since last Thursday. They found their dark corner to sleep before the students, those coming from far, began to walk in. The boy was known to leave, he admits, to frustrate his elders, but always alone and never this far. This is the first he has seen of the city. He says that at this point his village will be whistling to the hills for him and that he will try and find someone from near to his home and begin the return when the market clears in the days to come. The translator asks if he needs a place to sleep in the meantime and the boy says no, repeating that he will find someone truly from the Sierra, that the market should be full of them. And this other, the translator asks, the boy is confident his friend will find his way. He is found, he says. The deaf man sits silent, fingering the key around his neck, his felt hat pulled low to one side and his head turned toward the lightlessness of their cobbled refuge. One of the students, with greasy dark curls falling over his face, whispers in the translator's ear, urging him to ask of the deaf man's motives. Given the disheveled theatricality of the dark traveler's wardrobe, it is as if this student is reading Melville and thinking of Babo. The boy tells the translator that the teen who looks like a man does not speak. He is sure to slowly say that he has come of his own free will and that he considers his accomplice a friend. The skeptic takes a short and gnarled pencil hidden behind his ear and looks past the translator, pointing it at the deaf men. He asks in a raised voice where he is from, attempting to curry support, but he is punched in the arm and cursed silent. The crowd of students, some sharing cigarettes and many with their books tied in leather for the reins, has more than doubled inside, as if the two strangers were jugglers or fire eaters. Though he knows they will not comprehend, the boy speaks to the crowd, telling them that the troop of foreigners the deaf men came to the Sierra with may be following on foot. The translator begins to ask how he and the deaf men communicate, but is tripped up by the mention of a troop. The word takes some minutes to get to. Given the rumors, it is no surprise that the translator thinks the boy is talking of mercenaries making a march to the city. Though the boy insists that the foreigners, foreigners were putting on a show, the translator is steadily unsure if this meaning is precise. The translator asks him if the men speak like him. The boy shakes his head. The translator asks if he is aware of the violence. Though the boy's village had been burned out of their lands three times since he could remember, he knows this is not what he is being asked. The translator tells him the story of the hawks being sent to kill the students. The boy thinks of his great-grandmother and how she talks to the birds of the Sierra. This is how the death squads are known, the translator says to the boy's confusion, explaining that they, the boy and the deaf men, were thought to be lifeless bodies because of the way they were lying in the nook of the concrete stairs, as if they had tried to find shelter but were taken by the hawks, that they looked like the black and white photos they were searching for in El Rizal. The boy insists that he and the deaf men are not ghosts. So that's the first section, and we kind of go back to <coughs> the orient, origin story where this Raphael character first encounters the character that becomes the deaf man, and I think I have enough time here. Um, yeah, another couple minutes. Good, okay.
All right. May 1970. <clears throat> um, and there's some bru police brutality here at the center of this. I'm going to skip back past a great deal of it, but I'm more than happy to talk about approaches to violence or the theories that are going on in relation to this work in the Q&A. Raphael has come to the tree in Bed-Stuy after his morning shift in the wood shop at the lighthouse for the last three weeks. He had read the feature in the Times about the woman who was organizing the neighborhood kids to care for the greenery of Brooklyn, a reclamation of humanity. Incredulous, he came when he heard that a southern magnolia, somehow sheltered against the cold by a brownstone, has survived for decades, hundreds of miles from its intended ground. The tree reminds him of the good things from East Texas that he had not run from, of how his mother would send him to collect petals that she would soak and boil down to make her summer perfume. With June coming, the branches are starting to firm. He is here today with his usual roast beef and seven up for cuttings to add to his makeshift arboretum on the roof of his loft where he is collecting the species of the city. He climbs just below the uh, freshest branches, hangs his knapsack with his pruning knife um, on a knob of the trunk and hides among the blooms to eat his lunch. All of six foot three with his rosy skin, Roman nose and gangly limbs, his mother had called her um, him her flamingo. But besides the occasional passerby looking into the tree and a few children even waving, most have not bothered to notice him. Maybe, he thinks, he will return with a sack for petals to fill the bowls he has been teaching the blind students to make on the lath from scrap wood. When he balances his sandwich on the branch to sip his soda, he can see the young black boys with watering cans making their rounds in the park across the street. He thinks about the telegram to his father asking for tuition that he can no longer delay um, because though he dropped out in October, the rent is two months past due. When he has not been volunteering in the wood shop or sitting in trees, he has been making crude drawings of sets and scenes, sticking them to the sheetrock with chewed gum and running them with his growing following of amateur talent. Before the screens reach him, he believes the children with watering cans are playing a game running as kids do when the sun comes after such a harsh winter. Then he sees the torrent of black flesh and the police with billy clubs and white helmets, his soda tumbling through the branches as the black split the fountain and dart through the trees that lead to the street. He is still unbelieving until one of the officers catches an older boy wearing shorts and running slower than the rest and throws him to the ground by the throat. The other police, Raphael counts four, turn to the circling crowd, not yet using their clubs or their guns. From his height, he can see more sprinting from the precinct just beyond the park, as a woman cursing in howls is being held back from the vortex, the crowd trying to keep her from the helmeted men. For an instant, she's pulled just enough for him to see the face of the boy. And I'll skip ahead. When a police car arrives calling through, crawling through the crowd on the dirt walk of the park, demonstrating no need for sirens or flashing lights, a man throws a soda bottle that merely bursts on the rubber of the tire. Another, a woman in a turquoise dress and black flats who may have just been unlucky enough to pass through the park on her way back to an office after lunch, slaps the hood until the officer who was on the horse fires his gun at the light post just above her head. At the shattering of glass, the woman and the crowd begin to run again, away from the two beaten black bodies. It takes five officers to shackle and carry the naked woman to the back seat. This time, she turns her head <coughs> away as they pass the horse that carries the boy, 
Some in the broken crowd steady themselves on the concrete rim of the fountain while others hold children. When the horse begins to saunter, following the car, the two blocks to the precinct, a young girl appears to collect the woman's bloodied flowered shift from the street. Maybe this evening or in the morning, they will come together and throw stones at the glass door of the precinct. But now, the noise of the woman, the strange silence of the boy, the frenzied yet rehearsed steps of the crowd, the breath of the horse, all of it is gone. And Raphael has no alphabet for what he has seen. He does not remember descending from his southern magnolia or boarding the train or opening the door to his nearly abandoned building or climbing the stairs to his loft. All he knows is that now it is dark and drizzling and he is naked with a woman's wail buried in him. It takes his mind to when he was eight and his father forced him to go raccoon hunting the week after his mother died. It'll straighten him out, he heard his father saying on the phone, maybe talking to his aunt in Oklahoma before he knocked on his bedroom door. By the knock, he knew his father meant to be tender, that he had borrowed the neighbor's hound and they would go into the forest behind the house. Raphael's job was to hold the hound. He remembers that it took him all ways and that he tripped over the root of a cedar elm and bit his lip. His father fired one shot that day and waited as the raccoon lost its life, taking the leash so Raphael could sit on the ground and plug his ears and look away. His father didn't even hunt, just brought the animal in a grain sack to the neighbor who fed the meat to his dog. I'll stop there. I think that's enough. Questions?